0: Uh, I'm going to only read one verse out of the 24th chapter of Matthew, even though we're actually going to be talking quite a bit about a bunch of verses in Matthew 24. We would have to read the whole chapter. And uh, I'm going to presume a certain amount of familiarity on your part and uh, also a willingness to just read the chapter on your own at a convenient moment uh, sometime later today. But uh, Matthew chapter 24 and verse 9, Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Father, as we come uh, into your presence and worship you in spirit and truth, we also come to hear your word. And we understand and believe what your Bible says about itself. That it's living and it's active and it's sharper than any two-edged sword. That it goes out and accomplishes the spiritual work that needs to be done in the minds and hearts of your people. And then it comes back to you bringing fruit. And it never fails to produce the fruit and bring it back. And so we trust in your word and in your word alone. For it is what you have given us that we may be taught about you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, due to a, a peculiarity in the way that the calendar went this year, um, Christmas Eve day is on a Sunday, and so we'll have a normal morning service Uh On Sunday morning, the 24th of December, followed by the candlelight Christmas Eve service in the evening. But one of the things that this does is it messes with the Advent schedule. Usually, Advent starts the Sunday right after Thanksgiving. This year, technically, we're going to get five Sundays uh, instead of the usual four. And this is fine by me because it gives me some extra time and extra opportunity to speak about an important topic that is traditionally discussed during this time of year. Uh, The name Advent is uh, from the Latin word adventus, which simply means arrival. And Advent is, of course, the period in which we expectantly await Christmas, which itself is the celebration of Christ's arrival, Christ's birth. And so we meditate on the scriptures that point to his first coming as a babe in Bethlehem, during the season of advent but there's also a long tradition in the church of looking forward to christ's second advent his second coming and that's what we're going to take up this year and so just as when we use these weeks before christmas to meditate on the scriptures that describe the things that were said and done which led up to christ's first coming so also we should meditate on the things which the Bible says will be said and done and which will lead up to his second coming. And so we're going to look together at five specific events which are clearly taught in the Scriptures concerning the signs or the events that will lead up to the second coming of Christ. And I'll name those topics. Today we're going to discuss the Great Tribulation. Next week, we will talk about the great apostasy. After that, we will talk about the Antichrist, and then his glorious appearing, and then the great white throne of judgment. And then finally, on Christmas Eve, the new heavens and the new earth. Now, it is not my purpose to enter into all of the debated details of end times theology or to identify this or that symbolic thing in scripture with some concrete person or organization or event. I have watched these arguments go on for the 40 years that I've been a Christian, and they have been universally wrong. Uh, I can remember, uh, for instance, when I was a brand new Christian in the 80s, I can remember preachers and writers saying that the European common market was the beast. Does anybody remember that? Yeah. Well, the European common market ceased to exist in 1999, and we have no beast yet. I can remember the trembling excitement that 1987 brought because it was exactly 40 years after the founding of Israel, and 40 years is a biblical generation, and Christ has to come back within a a generation of the reestablishment of Israel because the Bible says so, except it doesn't actually say so, and he didn't. And the only wonderful thing that I can remember that happened in 1987 was the abolition of Jimmy Carter's 55-mile-per-hour speed limit on the interstate highways— I'm grateful for that. That was a wonderful event. I mean, thank God for that. You can legally drive in South Dakota at 80 miles an hour on the interstate. And for a while in Montana, the only speed limit on interstate highways was safe and prudent, whatever that was. And they, they finally had to do away with that because you had all these Germans coming over and renting uh, Porsches and Ferraris in Denver and then driving up to Montana and going 200 miles an hour, and, uh, and, which is what they like to do. And, uh, and the cops were like, okay, we've got to have a limit here. Okay, So they set it now to 80, but I can tell you on personal experience, they won't bust you for doing 90 unless you look like a drug courier. Okay. And as happy as all that makes me, it's still not anything near as good As the return of Christ. There's there's another side of this that I find, frankly, distasteful. For instance, uh, I've been told by a family member that she doubted my salvation because I didn't adhere to her chosen view concerning the biblical event that's commonly called the rapture, which is a word that actually is not found in the Bible, even though the event clearly is. And I didn't subscribe to her view, and she's like, I'm not sure you're saved. And I was like, well, I'm actually not sure you're saved either, but that doesn't have anything to do with your view of the rapture. Um, This is not my favorite subject because of that. I've, I've seen person after person in my own life and experience who was just enamored with end time stuff. And they were not growing in Christ. And their lives were ugly. But boy, they knew all about the end times. And most of what they knew has turned out to be wrong. This is not my favorite subject. It makes the charlatans rich. It makes many people a little nutty and argumentative and obsessed with things that are important, but they're not central. And they neglect things like spiritual growth, and it makes lots of headaches for pastors. But these things are also in the Scriptures, and the Scriptures were given to us to learn, and they are all profitable to us for the purpose of teaching us and training us in godliness. So so we're going to dive in, and we'll just trust the Lord here. The first question that I often get asked when people find out I'm a pastor is, Pastor, do you think we are in the last days? Do you think we're in the last days? And I always say, yes, yes. We are definitely in the last days. And I can say that with confidence because the Bible says that with confidence. If you open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 1 and verses 1 and 2, you will read the following. Hebrews 1, 1 and 2. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days... He has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. When did the last days start? Well, according to Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, the the last days started with the arrival of Jesus, and in particular with his death and resurrection. Now, clearly there will be a last days to the last days, but we're in the last days, Some might ask, is Jesus coming back soon, pastor? And once again, I say yes, because the Bible says so in Revelation 22 and verse 7. Behold, says the risen Jesus, I am coming soon. Now that was written in 95 AD. So you've got to understand that God's soon and our soon are two different things. Now, why do I emphasize this? I emphasize this because Christian people, especially since the 1970s with the kind of the, the, the revival that happened in the, in the early 70s, uh, Christian people have tried to tell the world that certain events mean that Jesus is coming back really soon, and also they will try and say a lack of certain events means he can't come back yet. And so there's all this speculation about these events, about temples, and red heifers, and blood moons, and Gog and Magog, and I can remember being told that Gog and Magog were the Soviets, and that the, scorp- the, the locusts in the book of Revelation with the scorpion tails are actually cobra attack helicopters, and blah, blah, blah. Jesus himself only gives one definitive sign. And it's not the Soviet army storing uniforms and cavalry gear in a warehouse in Lebanon. In Matthew 24, 14, Jesus says, And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. In other words, Jesus will return sometime after the last elect person is regenerated by the Holy Spirit, and he or she believes savingly on the Lord Jesus Christ and is born again. That's, when we, that's the sign. And most of the rest of the stuff that we come up with is a nutty distraction with a 100% failure rate, and it makes us look foolish, honestly, in the world's eyes, and it distracts us from the real task that Jesus gave us. That real task is to help bring about the salvation of that last person. We're both to live out the gospel and to share the gospel with everyone everywhere. We are to be salt and light and go to all the nations and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the triune God and teaching them how to obey everything that Jesus commanded. And we have wonderful opportunities in our day. We just um, attempted to jumpstart, and it's jumpstarted, we'll see how long it takes to get going, but, but uh, we've got this wonderful opportunity with all these international students coming to YSU. The nations are coming to us. We just had our student and her roommate over for Thanksgiving, and uh, all of her roommates, she's got like six roommates, all of them are from the same country, from Nepal. And I said, why in the world are all these Nepalese here? And she said, They are advertising like crazy in Nepal. Everybody in South Asia knows Youngstown State University, and we all want to go here. And I'm like, really? Okay. They're coming here. They don't know the Lord. They are without hope and without God in the world, and his elect are among them. And you have within you the cure for the disease of sin that is killing them. These people in these apartments all around us here, they need Jesus. Your workmates need Jesus. Your grandchildren need Jesus. Do you hold your peace unnecessarily and not speak a seasonable word about Jesus? You shouldn't. So are we in the last days? Yes. Is Jesus coming back soon? Yes. What event will trigger the end? The salvation of the last soul that God predestined to be saved before the foundation of the world, and we don't know who or where or when that happens. That's my first point. My second point is this. There are some highly visible events that will precede his coming, but I want to highlight a phrase that Jesus uses in Matthew 24 to describe those events. It's one word in Greek. It's odinon. It's two words in English, birth pains, birth pains. And We find this in Matthew chapter 24 and verse 8. Now I want you to think carefully about birth pains and about how they work. They start slowly with mild contractions which are far apart. And then as the woman proceeds through her labor, the contractions become more intense and more painful, and they occur closer and closer together until the moment the baby is pushed out from the mother's body and the birth is accomplished. And what Jesus is telling us here is that as we get closer and closer to the time of his return, certain evil and destructive things which occur all throughout history— will become larger, more painful, more destructive, and more frequent. Now, what are these things that will happen? What are the actual pains that will be inflicted on the world? Well, Jesus says, nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be wars. And wars are always tremendously disruptive. There will be famines. And in the book of Revelation, it talks about plagues of different diseases in Revelation chapter 6 and verse 9. There will be earthquakes in various places. In other words, there will be natural disasters which are increasingly destructive and costly. In Revelation chapter 8, uh, during the, the, the trumpets, which the angels are blowing, and each trumpet precipitates a judgment from God on the, on the earth. In one of the trumpets, it says something like a mountain was thrown into the sea, and a third of the waters were made poison, and a third of the life in them died, and a third of the ships that were on the sea were destroyed. You know, we're always worried about asteroids hitting us. we started to track those things and realize how close they're coming. Could that be something that happens as a natural disaster at the end of days? Sure. Sure. Jesus also says, they're coming after you who bear my name. There will be persecution, and all nations will hate you, and they will kill you. He says also there will be false prophets and false messiahs offering up God's people Hope of rescue from their enemies. But those false prophets and false messiahs will lead them astray. And if possible, deceive them. It says there will be an increase of crime and lawlessness. And then it says on account of all these things, the love of many will grow cold. The natural bonds of family and friendship will fracture and dissolve. And nobody will trust anybody. I was just reading in the New York Times this week. They were talking about this next generation, the young millennials and the next generation behind them, and and they, they are not going to church. They don't trust the church, but it turns out that that's not unique. They don't trust anybody or anything. They don't trust the government. They don't trust each other. They're very isolated. Those bonds of normal friendship and kinship and fellowship have dissolved as they've sat in the dark looking at their screens eight or ten hours a day. Now, all of these things have happened before in history, all over the world. I mean, when have we ever been war-free or earthquake-free on this planet? Not since the very beginning. There have always been famines. As a matter of fact, we're working on one right now, and it's going to be a big one. Because of the war between Russia and Ukraine and the sanctions, there's a a tremendous loss to the world, first of all, of agricultural products like wheat and other grains from both Russia and Ukraine, but there's also a tremendous loss of fertilizers. And the whole green revolution that took place in the 60s and 70s that increased the food supply by 30% to feed a hungry planet was predicated on the industrial production of three fertilizers. The first fertilizer is uh, uh, ammonia, which is made from natural gas, and the Russians make more of that than anybody else. The second one is potash, which is mined in both Russia and Belorussia. They're the number one and number two producers in the world, and everybody behind them is a distant third. And, and you also uh, uh, need to think about the production of, uh, of potassium, And uh, or, I'm sorry, of phosphorus, which China mostly produces because it's necessary for rice, and they're hoarding it right now. There's a worldwide shortage of these things, and as a result, people in Africa, for instance, are starting to get hungry, and they're down to many in many places one meal a day, and that's all they can afford, because the the harvests are poor because there's fertilizer that's too expensive to buy. There's a shortage of fertilizer, and it will be bad. I've been praying for this and about this for a year now or more. It will be bad. And even if the war in Ukraine ends tomorrow, which it won't, it won't bring all that stuff back online anytime soon. So there's going to be a pretty big famine. Does that mean the end times are near? Well, maybe. But maybe it's just a birth pain. When we look at the United States, Christians have lost almost all of our cultural power here in the U.S. And those who now have the cultural power despise us. And we've been spinning furiously trying to get the cultural power back by electing the right people and it's not going to work. We don't have it anymore. And this will lead eventually to some type of persecution. Now, it will probably be mild by the standards of history and by the standards of what our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world have had to go through. But God's people have been persecuted everywhere for thousands of years. Is this a sign of the end or a birth pain? I don't know. We certainly are not likely to experience torture and execution here in the U.S., but our brothers and sisters in China will again. And our brothers and sisters in Iran are experiencing that right now. The fastest growing church on the planet, according to Voice of the Martyrs, is the Iranian church. And it's growing by leaps and bounds, even though the mullahs and the religious police are doing everything they can to stamp it out. People are just coming to Jesus. There's, <laughs> there's these wonderful stories coming out of there. When God moves, he moves in, in this amazing way. And, and one of the stories that was in Voice of the Martyrs, which, by the way, I, I highly encourage you to support and to, to read, uh, this guy was sneaking Bibles uh, into Iran in a car from the, the Turkish border. And they were in Farsi, which is the language that the Iranians speak. And, and they're driving them to, they're attending to go to one place. And as they're driving, the car just quits. And they pull over to the side of the road and they're like, crud, now we got a broken car full of illegal Bibles. And this guy walks up and he says, Are you the people with the Bibles? And the, the two guys in the car look at each other and go, What? Well, I became a follower of Jesus a few weeks ago and I told my village about it and almost all my village has become followers of Jesus and an angel appeared to me and said that I needed to come here and, and I, when I came here, I would meet somebody that had Bibles. So are you the people with the Bibles? Yes, we are. So they gave those Bibles back and got their car fixed and went back to Turkey. Those kind of things are happening. Right? I mean, I love that but those people are undergoing tremendous pain and suffering on account of their testimony of the Lord Jesus. That's not probably going to happen to us. I mean, it's not impossible, I suppose, but not under this legal framework. I think probably what's going to happen is that the uh, pro-homosexual community that runs the U.S. now wants to discriminate against us in terms of jobs, and maybe legally harass us and deny us public services because that's how gays were treated 50 or 60 years ago, and they want their revenge. I think maybe they'll turn a blind eye when somebody beats a Christian up, uh, when the chance arises, and those sorts of things are actually happening right now. You see them on Twitter. Um, you see, for instance, videos, short videos of a Christian leaving a protest, and he's jumped by several counter-protesters and beaten up. In some videos, the cops stand by and literally do nothing. Nobody is arrested. Nobody is prosecuted. Nobody goes to jail. The media ignores it. Now, if it was a Jewish guy or a Muslim guy beaten by a mob who hated his religion, that would be international news. But a Christian guy won't even make local TV if he's beaten up by the Christophobes. That's what I'm going to call those people now, Christophobes. That's my new word. Everyone who hates us is a Christophobe. They're afraid of Christ and afraid of his people. We should prepare for that. We should prepare ourselves mentally and spiritually and physically. We should prepare ourselves economically. We need to be networking economically. I just read last week about a company in Portland, Oregon, that's a sole proprietorship owned by a Christian, and they make uh, transformers for the electrical grid. And right now there's a huge shortage of Transformers. And so they've got all kinds of business for years to come. And they make it their business to hire Christians who have lost their jobs for being Christians, particularly people like college professors. And we need things like that in place. We we should be buying all of our furniture from Dan and Diane. You're welcome. We should be buying all of our windows from Brad Schumer. We should start our own banks because that's one of the places where they've come after people they don't like is banking. We should uh, come up with our own ways of accessing crowdsourcing and fundraising so that we can ship money around the world at a short notice for important things. We should... Uh, we should select a few key Christian colleges and universities and then build those into powerhouses that educate and train Christian people for good jobs in key fields, and then we should protect them from the modern mind virus that makes people crazy at all costs. Our political activities should focus on keeping the right to educate our kids and on protecting our religious rights and freedoms. That will help us greatly if this is just a birth pang. It will mitigate the damage that this thing is going to do as it barrels down upon us at breakneck speed. It will eventually disintegrate under the weight of its own internal contradictions if it's a birth pang. And we will be at peace again. But it's going to be a while. And a lot of people are going to get hurt in the process. We should be ready to help them. And if it's not a birth pang... If this is the beginning of the end, well, there's not much we can do except surf the wave that God sends and be confident that our God loves us and he has our backs and that he wins in the end and that we should lift up our heads because his redemption draws nigh. In in Revelation chapter 13, um, during one of the judgments, uh, it talks about God giving people permission to hurt us. And and then it says, to him who's supposed to go to jail, off to jail with him. And to him who's supposed to be killed, well, he'll be killed. That's what the Bible says. It's going to happen. Matthew 24, verses 13 and 14, people will hate you. They will hate you. All the nations will hate you. That's going to happen. Now, there's something that I want to kind of awkwardly sandwich in here at the end hopefully to clear up something in this text that might confuse you or might have confused you in the past. In Matthew chapter 24, it begins with Jesus prophesying about the destruction of the temple. They're walking in, the disciples and Jesus are walking towards the temple and they're looking at these great stones and there, there was an amazing feat of engineering and, and they're just like, wow, we can't believe they were able to stack up all these rocks like this. And, and Jesus says, there's coming a time very soon where this temple will be destroyed and not one stone will be left upon another. And then it says a little bit later, his disciples asked him, Tell us when these things will be and what will be the sign of your coming and the close of the age. So the disciples are connecting the destruction of that temple to this the coming of Jesus, and the close of the age. In all likelihood, the disciples viewed that as one question, when history teaches us that it was, in fact, two very different questions. According to many commentators, John Calvin among them, there was a common Jewish folk belief that the temple would stand until the end of the world when Messiah would conquer all the nations and would bring the Gentiles into the worship of the true and living God. And then the law would be fulfilled and the purpose of the temple would be fulfilled. And so when Jesus prophesies about the function of the temple in their minds, He's also talking at the same time about the end of this age and the dawning of the age of the Messiah's reign over the whole world. And in their understanding, the Jews would be the rulers of the world under the Messiah. This is why uh, James and John wanted to be on his right and his left. This was supposed to, in their minds, it's like, you know, we're going to run the world. So those two things were the same to them. Jesus does not immediately explain their error and then refute their error. But he does say things that they can think about and look back on and reconsider over and over again, which will guide them eventually out of their error. And so he talks about the birth pangs and introduces that concept to them. He also says this gospel has to be preached to every nation. And then he talks about the fall of the temple which is, at the time of this telling, only about 37 years in the future at that point. And in Matthew chapter 24 uh, and verse 15, I will read just a little of that to you. Matthew 24, 15. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in the house. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. Pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath, for there will be great tribulation such as the world has never seen been from the beginning of the world until now. No, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. If anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. So if they say to you, look, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. And so he does two things, really. He talks then about his very visible return. In the clouds, verses verses 29 through 31, I won't read it to you in the interest of time. He does two things. First of all, he reasserts the authority and trustworthiness of his words. He asserts that nobody but God the Father knows exactly when he will return. And indeed, he himself, he says, doesn't know when he will return. Neither do the angels. That's in verses 32 through 41. And then he tells a parable to encourage them to always be ready because his return will be sudden. And they need to be busy about their duties. Now, we could explore this passage in great detail and learn a lot. We don't have time now. But I want you to notice something that I think is very important. Jesus lets them keep their theological errors for now. He does not teach them the exact way it's going to unfold. He teaches, though, in such a way that when the temple is destroyed in 70 AD and it turns out not to be the end of the age, he teaches them it's just a birth pang and that their faith in him, therefore, need not be damaged. In other words, if if you think about it, if 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 he had let them carry on with the belief that the temple can't be destroyed until the end of the age, and then in 70 AD the temple is destroyed and nothing happens, what are they going to conclude? Jesus is a liar. He didn't know something he should have known. And so they, in order to preserve them from that eventuality, he gives them all the tools in place beforehand to figure it out on their own when it happens. Now There is a relationship between spiritual truth and salvation. But it's not the one that many people think. There are really very few things that you've got to understand and believe about Jesus in order to be saved. And they are very basic. A child can grasp them. And beyond that, there are many things to learn. And many of them are quite important. And on many of them, Christians disagree all the time. And of course, I know that mine are exactly right and that everybody else is wrong because I'm a Calvinist after all and you used to be able to see my ego from outer space. This is not a plea for ignorance. This is a plea for humility. It's very possible that I'm wrong on some important things and that the Methodists or the Baptists or the Assemblies of God or God forbid the Roman Catholics are correct. But being wrong on those things is not going to cost me my golden ticket to heaven, nor you. You can be wrong and are wrong on lots of things, and Jesus will still redeem you and still walk with you and still love you. In other words, you're not saved because your doctrine is correct. It's exactly the other way around. If your doctrine is actually correct, it's an after effect, it's a side effect of your being saved. Therefore, we must not sharply correct or attack or reject a fellow believer who has different doctrine than we do, even if they're wrong, even if we can't be in the same denomination with them because of our disagreement. We we let them think what they want to think, as long as they've got the basics about Jesus down. We let them think what they want to think, and then when something happens that undoes their theology, we come up beside them quietly and point them again to the words of Jesus in the Bible and help them think through it all again and perhaps think through it in a better way. I, I know of a man who uh, had some very strong theological opinions that he really based everything on, seems like, and uh, in it was centered around healing and the person that he was proclaiming healing for didn't get healed he died and this guy is a complete train wreck now because everything he thought he knew was wrong and but he wouldn't he wouldn't hear of it before that he might be wrong he wanted everybody to believe like he did and and now he's really struggling well we we need to come up beside a brother like that and not go You see, you moron, you should become a Presbyterian. You'll be a lot righter. We should say, I'm sorry. Let's work this through together from the Scriptures. With what's coming, we need each other. And we need each other more than you can now imagine. And we need to be able to work together in a coordinated way that we just can't seem to manage right now in the church. It's time for us to set aside our desires to be pleased and our desire to have our own way and our consumerist, individualistic lifestyle that we baptize and bring to church and say, now, I want things done a different way around here or I'm not sticking around. The Time for that is over. You know, and it's interesting. You can read stories about a pastor, a Lutheran pastor in Romania named Wormbrand. And in the 60s and 70s, the Ceaușescu regime, the communist regime, put all the Christians in jail in horrible conditions. And there were Romanian Orthodox and Roman Catholic and Lutheran and charismatic. They all went in the same nasty, stinking cell. And it didn't matter what church you belonged to. And they prayed for each other and they served each other and they loved each other and they cared for each other while they were dying. And they died like flies. Because it didn't matter anymore that the other guy was wrong. What mattered was Jesus and loving the guy in front of you. So you got to give up this idea that I need to be pleased, I need to be catered to. If I'm not, if I don't have things I like my way, well, pff, I'm out of here. You, you got to give that up. We don't have time for it anymore. We don't have the resources for it anymore. Your faith, if that's your faith, will not stand in that day of persecution because your whole mentality has been centered on getting what you want and all of a sudden what you want will be so far from possible it's not even funny. Your faith will not stand. I say that as a loving warning. You will not stand in that day. You can't do simple things like keep a commitment and tell the truth now. Jesus is coming, and he's coming soon. May God help us to be ready and to be prepared. Father, we thank you so much for your word, which is truth. And if I've said anything this morning which is wrong, cause it to be forgotten. If I've said anything this morning that is right and good and helpful, cause it to be remembered and to not just be remembered with the mind, but to go down into the heart and to change our will and our appetites and our desires from which we operate. We pray this in Jesus' name.